Welcome to the Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study Podcast. Today we are going to be starting a new book. We will be going through Jude in the next several weeks. Um, <clears throat> now Jude, if you will know, is a one chapter epistle. You find it right before Revelation in the back of the Bible right there towards the end. Um, it's very good. It's very powerful. So um, with that, I hope you have a Bible handy where you can stop and listen and read along. Um, but uh, let's get started, shall we? Father God, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for another opportunity to share your word, Lord. Father, I pray that you would go before each and every one of us that are listening, Lord, that, um, Father, that you would be the, the, the reference point for us, Lord, as we search the word, Lord, that everything would just come back to you. <clears throat> and that we would have just understanding, that we would have knowledge, and that we would have peace in knowing that you're there, that you love us, and that you cover us. Father, I thank you, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jude. <clears throat> Jude is a one-chapter epistle. It was written in the standard literary form of the ancient day. It begins with the author Jude, or Judas, as we'll come to see him, identifying himself as the author at the beginning and addressing the church. Jude is most com commonly known as a half-brother of Jesus. The letter addresses the arrival of the teachings of a false gospel that was making its way around the church. Now, by this point, many believers had heard the message of the false teachers and were aware of the, cha uh, of the changes that were trying to be made concerning the gospel as far as the authority of Jesus, as well as the authority of the Old Testament, moral code in their lives as believers. Now, often we deal with the same type of heresy in today's church, as we see more and more of the attacks on the church and the biblical way of, of life coming into focus. You know, today we identify things that we do not like, and we attach the word culture to them, uh, and cast it off as some sort of sect or group that is backwards or behind the times. Oftentimes, these are the truths uh, and the sins that people are convicted most by, and so the avenue that is taken is one of denial and the reimagining, a new word that's popped up in the last few years, of the meanings of Scripture. Now, it's not just the church anymore where we see this. We see in our daily lives the definition of certain words or actions, uh, getting new definitions all the time. Now, this is part of the postmodern world where there is no belief in an absolute truth. There is no right or wrong, only feelings, emotions, and self-gratification. The word culture appears to be the key word in the vocabulary for the leaders of the world. Um, culture is a driving force to make the gospel acceptable in the postmodern 21st century. However, whenever culture shapes the gospel, truth inevitably diminishes with the culture's strong embrace. Now, in the view of the postmodern teacher, experience of community determines truth in its uh, you know, it is a collective consensus that starts with man rather than with the Bible. Um, Dan Kimball, one of the authors of the book Emerging Churches, writes, Since language is constantly shifting according to postmodern thought, there can be many interpretations of a Bible, word, or text, not just one meaning. Biblical terms like gospel and Armageddon need to be deconstructed and redefined. So what is deconstructionism? Deconstructionism is a postmodern philosophical literary approach that utilizes the hermeneutics of suspicion. This approach hunts down tensions and inconsistencies in the text. Postmodernists believe all literary texts as well as Bible texts have them. 
The purpose is to deconstruct, to dismantle the text. This generates new insights that, pro that probably will contradict the actual text. No, it's saying, I'll do what I want, even if I, do, if I know it's wrong. I'll just convince myself that it's right and that everybody else is wrong. That's basically the thought process behind postmodern uh, deconstructionism. This, of course, is a sharp turn away from the narrow path and onto the broad road that leads to destruction. Now, we are not called to be self-serving. We are not called to be bond servants. We are called to put aside our own passions and lusts and walk in the way of the Lord Jesus as his disciples. You know, when we serve ourselves, we are creating a God in our own image. When we, in fact, were created in his image, you know, we're reversing the roles and we are taking <clears throat> the authority away from him. The epistle is written concerning those that seek to change the message, that try to make the church fit into the world and pollute, distort, and bend the truth for acceptance, popularity, and gain. It is direct. It is to the point. It is harsh because it holds nothing back concerning the results of apostasy. Now, this is a salty text <clears throat> in the midst of a sugar-coated world. It is not politically correct, and it is it is just what the church as a whole anymore needs to be aware of and to be hearing right now. So with that, let's get into it. Jude chapter 1, well, I shouldn't say chapter 1, there's only one chapter, but verse 1 uh, says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this con uh, condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God, of our God, into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude identifies himself as the brother of James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. If we look at Matthew for a reference to the siblings of Jesus, we have Jude identified as Judas. So taking a look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 is where we'll start. It says, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get, his wis get this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? <clears throat> Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own, in his, in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So we know that James became a believer after the resurrection. We know that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and that he was martyred. Not much is really known about the other brothers or sisters of Jesus, but we do know that at least two became members, uh, be became believers. Now, I would imagine all of them did or, or, or would, but that's open to further study, I suppose. Now, he identifies as a bondservant, a willing slave, a, or servant of the Lord. Now, the word slave is thrown around these days uh, very often, referring to people of different races and cultures. Now, it definitely has some bad history behind it, and there is no doubt about it. 
you know, in the days of Jesus, though, there was slavery. And the slaves of the day were really, uh, really didn't have it as bad as some may think. They worked, of course, but they also had housing. They had food and they had medical care. You know, these were things that a lot of free men didn't have. In fact, in those days, a free person would only make enough during the day um, working to be able to afford that day's worth of food. Now, if we look at Old Testament slavery, <clears throat> we read that a person that who was considered a slave uh, was to be set free after seven years. Now, if the person did not want to leave, they would have their ear pierced and from then on would be a bond servant. Now, that's a willful servant, somebody that was there on their own accord and not against their will. They are there in service, but still under the leadership of the Lord or the head of the estate. Now, a servant or a person in high, uh, <clears throat> of a person in high position in Roman times was often one of the freest people in the civil civilization. Many held very esteemed roles in the Roman world. Now, if a person could be a Roman slave uh, and high of uh, and of high esteem, how much more so would we, as bond servants of the King of Kings, be free as well in our servants to the Lord? You know, if you really think about it, we are free. We have the freedom to make all the choices in the world. You know, it's the Holy Spirit that directs us to make the right choices. But, you know, we do at serve the King of Kings. We serve the highest King. There's no King on earth that can match His majesty, His glory, or His power. And we serve Him willfully. We serve Him, you know, prayerfully and lovingly. And he, he, you know, he returns that love back to us in the freedom that he's given us, in the liberty that he's given us, right? But in that liberty, we use that liberty to make the right choices in our lives. We don't just use that liberty to get off and, and abuse the grace that he's shown us. No, we use that liberty to say, hey, you know what? I might have slipped, but I'm not going to slip again. And thank you, Lord, for that. I'm going to change. I'm going to build my character, and I'm going to turn in the opposite direction. I'm going to go the right way. I'm going to repent and come towards the Lord instead of away from, away from Him. Now it says, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Called means to be summoned or invited. And we're all invited when we're presented with the truth of the gospel unto salvation. When we are called or invited, it means that we are addressed and provoked to leave one place to, uh, and go to another. To change the state of presence and be in another. Now the call is to sanctification, to be in hallowed ground, to be changed and transformed into something holy from something unholy. And we are kept or empowered or guarded in that by our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price of admission for us on the cross. You know, he gives us the power to keep, to observe, to obey his word by the Holy Spirit that moves uh, us towards righteousness. We are invited, transformed, and protected by the blood of the Lamb. We are like Cinderella, but the clock never strikes midnight because once we enter into marriage with the Lamb, we are in His presence for eternity. Verse 2 says, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Because uh, love is an attitude, attribute of God, as a result, He expels grace and mercy. God is love, God is gracious, and God is merciful. God cannot love us, and even though men... Uh, can't, God cannot not love us, I'm sorry. And even though men have chosen not to love God, he still loves them. You know, without love, there is no mercy. We are all living in the mercy of God. Uh, none of us deserves the grace and mercy extended to us, but because of his love, we are partakers of it. 
You know, mercy is being granted a pardon from the judgment and punishment that we deserve. Grace is being given an inheritance that we could never deserve. You know, it is the power grant, uh, granted to us to overcome sin and not continue on in sin. Both are tied together because the love of God, uh, because of the love of God over his creation. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, the main problem that the church was facing and that Judah's writings about is the teaching that was making its way around. That because a person was saved and their sins were forgiven, they no longer had to fear any further sin, but were exempt uh, from it. You know, in other words, it was like having an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever you want. But we know that this is not uh, the case. And Jude knew it and was not uh, knew it was not the case. And so he was writing to the church to contend for their faith. You know, to contend means to hold true to the truth of the gospel, to hand down, uh, you know, as handed down by the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Truth does not change. It does not evolve. It does not mutate. Truth is truth. It is concrete. It is set. It is anchored. It does not move. You know, when we earnestly believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and our salvation on his behalf, it means that we hold and we believe it and we uh, with all we have we spare nothing when it comes uh, when it concerns our trust our faith or it, or our faith in the truth you know why is it important for us to hold fast to what we believe why is it important for us to believe earnestly why is it important for us to check everything we hear against scripture well let's look at verse 4 it says for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord, uh, uh, Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at the phrase marked out. That means written about beforehand. You know, the alarm has already been sounded on the behalf of their, uh, their imminent arrival. We know that there are people out there that are going to come and bring a false gospel. Looking at some other New Testament quotes on this, let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 24, verse, uh, verse 24, with our Lord Jesus speaking. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Now, I think this verse really relates more to our time right now, where we do have these leaders that are coming up, these world leaders. That are trying to take the, uh, you know, take the place uh, of of God in our lives, right? We have big government moving in and trying to um, offer cradle to grave benefits, and so what's happening with that is people are not relying on God. They're not relying on their own will to live, to get out, to earn, but they're waiting for somebody else to take care of them. And that doesn't work that way. Take a look at Galatians chapter two, verse four, and it says, "And this be because of false brethren seek." Uh, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 uh, through 15, Paul writes this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder... 
For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if, he, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You know, these guys, uh, as verse 4 states, creep in. Dr. J. Vernon McGee calls these guys creeps in his, uh, in his commentary on this book. You know, they come in through the side door unnoticed. And before we know, uh, they're there and they are established. They are people that possess, uh, profess one thing but believe another. Now, what does that mean for us in this day and age? In Jude's day, that, uh, you know, the message was lewdness and ignorance, to be unaware of the scriptures and the truth of the way, uh, of the way a believer is to live. You know, it was the message that there was no restraint when it came to freedom in Christ. If we look at the verse we just read in Galatians, we can see clearly that the work of the false teacher is to use the liberty we have in the Lord as a means of drawing a person back into sin. You know, when we are saved, we are released from the bondage of sin. We are released from all the things that were holding us back from being both close to and used by God and, and given a freedom in Christ to be separate from the things that the things those things and live for God knowing that there is a better way and a greater reward for holiness than there is for the world the, the way of worldly living you know the false teacher is one that comes in and by deceit and cunning uh, words draws believers back into the bondage of sin back into the things that hold a person back and separate them from the will of God you know we talk about wolves in sheep's clothing People that appear to be one thing, but are covered in a lie. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not uh, bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You know, wolves do not hunt to take out the whole flock or herd at once. They move in and they divide the weaker from the stronger before they make the kill. Now it's the same with the false teacher and the believer. You know, they'll come in and remove the ignorant person from the well-read and train them in their ways so that they uh, then will reproduce more of the false doctrine that they have been teaching. Now, eventually, they will get a hold of somebody in power. And before you know it, they're overtaking the whole group. You know, today we see the influence of Karl Barth over the uh, emergent church that has greatly moved into the American landscape. You know, this is a man that does not believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God, at least not at all, uh, not all of it anyways. So he takes and he chooses what he likes, basically, and dumps what he doesn't. Now, his influence is far, far reaching. He has taken guys such as Charles Fuller, the founder of Fuller Seminary, <clears throat> and, 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 and trained them up in his doctrine. You know, when you can influence the president of a major seminary, as he has uh, been able to, you influence a whole group of future leaders. You know, one of the notable graduates of, of Fuller is one Rick Warren. You know, we get as a result the megachurch. 
where the messages are less centered on the truth of Scripture and more centered on experience. When a person does not believe that Scripture is inerrant, there is no need to make it uh, the central message, and so experience becomes the focal point. You know, if we look around today, we see many people sharing on social media, the pastor with the skinny jeans and the jacket, walking around with the mic, giving an inspirational quote that makes us feel good about ourselves. But there is no message of repentance, no conviction, just fluff, and it's liver quivers. You know, it's experience-based. You know, be the best you can be today, and uh, stuff like that. You know, basically what I hear when I see these things and often they're shared by somebody that's living in sin, you know, with their boyfriend or girlfriend, is, is this. You know, I can do whatever I want because God loves me and I'm a strong tower. Well, that's partially true. God loves you. And second, you can do whatever you want. But if you're doing what you want and that want is sin, well, you're moving further away from God and not closer to God. You know, and as it relates back to what Jude is telling us, is there is nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. It repeats itself, and the devil will use the same tactic repeatedly when you have a society that denies truth, denies scripture, and is eager to remove its history. You know, when you remove history and, and where a person or people come from, that person or group be, uh, becomes one without a direction, and thus will be willing to follow any direction that's offered. Let's take a look at verse 5. It says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their, whole their, their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in similar manner to those having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So judgment has always been reserved for those that fall away from the faith. Many of the Jewish Christians and even Gentile converts knew the Exodus story. Even when God parted the Red Sea and was visible by cl by cloud in cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, people did not believe. Now, over a period of 40 years, many of the people of Israel died off and did not enter the promised land. We are not promised that we will never fail. In fact, we are going to fail at some point. But the key to our walks is to start over and continue on and not say, stay in that failure. Right? We have to keep moving forward. We have to keep repenting and changing. Even if we have to repent like five different times because we fall back into it, guess what? As long as our hearts to, is for the Lord... We are not going to end up in destruction. We are going to end up for him. We look at examples like David. You know, David was a man. David failed. You know, he he failed with Bathsheba. He failed on many different fronts. You know, he lied. He pretended that he was uh, uh, mentally ill in, in front of his enemies. All, all these different things. But why did God use him? Why did God use him to bring about Jesus in the line? Because he had a heart for the Lord. You know, he sought after the Lord. You know, even though we fail, even though we fall short, we still seek the Lord. And that's the, the message here that we need to continue on with. Uh, you know, in these three verses, we are presented with a few challenges because there, uh, in them are references to apocryphal writings. So take a look at verse 6. And it says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, 
He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So in verse 6, we're presented with the Jewish tradition that comes from the first book of Enoch. Um, we know from Genesis 6 what happened when the fallen angels left their domain and had intercourse with women and created a giant of races, right? Uh, a race of giants, I'm sorry. Um, in Genesis chapter 6, verses, verse 1 through 4, it says, Now it came to pass, when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, these would be the fallen angels, saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These, uh, Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So look at Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of, of, of the ungodly. So, you know, we see what happened here. We had these fallen angels coming down. They were intermingling with humans. And the result of it were the giants, right? We had a race of giants. And basically there were several tribes of giants. Now, did giants exist? You know, I've heard many teachings where people either believe in giants or do not believe in giants. Well, if the Bible says there were giants, in my humble opinion, there were giants. Now, if you look at some of the proof and the history that was going on, you know, if we trust the biblical accounts of, uh, of the Bible, then yes. If we look at some of the events and legends from our Native American brothers here in the United States, uh, you know, the stories of giants are corroborated. And that's just here. You know, you can go to Israel, you can go to, uh, you know, Afghanistan, all these different places, and there are stories of giants. You know, here in New Mexico, where I live, um, up in the northwest corner, kind of by uh, southern Colorado there, there's a place called Chaco Canyon. And, you know, if you go and you look at it, uh, there, there are six major um, Native American ruins up there. And uh, they're all about the size of a super Walmart. Now, if you're listening somewhere and if you've never seen this, Google it. Take a look at it. I mean, these things are incredibly huge. And they're very complex. There's a lot of tools. There's a big staircase that they built into the side of the mountain where you can go up to the top. And there's another house up there. And, uh, you know, it's nuts. But this thing was abandoned. This whole area was abandoned. And nobody really knows why. Well, one story that I've heard about this was that uh, there was a race of giants in the area and what they would do they were cannibals they would come and they would stat, uh, snatch people and eat them and so the the tribe and the and the, the the you know the people that were living in Chaco Canyon eventually moved and what happened was the result of that was uh, you get the quip, the cliff dwellings that are up here in uh, you know northeastern Arizona there's a little bit uh, a little further south here in New Mexico around the Taos area and you've got some up uh, in southern Colorado 
And what that did was it gave the people a higher vantage point so that they could defend themselves when these guys came around. You know, it's easier to shoot down than it is to shoot up. And so, uh, uh, you know, you have different things like that. You know, there have been graves along the eastern side of the United States with skeletons measuring nine feet tall and three feet wide with two rows of teeth and six fingers and six toes on each hand. Another legend I've heard is from Indiana where the Plains Indians uh, told of a race of supermen that would run alongside the buffalo in the fields and simply pick them up and run away with them. Now what makes the reference of the book of First Enoch is the phrase the great day, you know, used in place of judgment. Otherwise, we have a tradition that is backed by scripture and is authenticated. You know, when the fallen angels, oh, what the fallen angels did is the same thing that the false teachers do. They took something pure when they went into the daughters of, uh, of, of men and they corrupted them and they made them evil. You know, as a result of that is exactly what we see in Genesis 19. And I'll let you read that on your own, on your own time. But when the people lost their sense of morality, they lost their direction and moral compass. Now, one thing that uh, seems small in regards to sin became their identity. And that identity was smothered in depravity. And thus they were punished for it. You know, they may, uh, they may have claimed to believe in God. They may have had some sort of religious system in place in Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the end, it's not about what you say and profess if you do not live like and act like you believe what you say. You know, our study through First John taught us that we must believe in Jesus, live morally in his will, and love others because uh, he loves us. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, th that love was lost on the objectivity of lust. And they came to a point where they were irredeemable. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. You know, our subject matter of this epistle is the false teachers and their ravenous ways. One thing that is often forgotten by people that want to be pastors and teachers is that there is a stricter judgment. You don't just teach it, you have to live it. You know, I'll be the first to tell you, you, you know, when you go to church and you hear something that convicts you and, and you're sitting in the pew, like, you know, just toiling because the Lord's put his finger on you and said, hey, man, you got to cut this out. Uh, think about the man that's up there on the pulpit teaching that. You know, right now I'm sitting here teaching you and I was talking with my pastor the other night. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this epistle and, and some of the ones that we've covered. And I was like, man, you, you really got to look in the mirror when you're, you're going through and studying these things. You've got to make sure that it's not you that's out there that you're teaching about and that, and that the Bible's warning about, right? I mean, some of these things, man, they cut you deeply. And and you better realize that the, the verse that got you, uh, you know, has probably cut the man that delivered it directly to his core. And it does sometimes because we are called to examine ourselves. We are called to a stricter judgment, as the Bible says, man. We've got to be watching out for ourselves. You know, I don't want to be one of those men that's out there taking something pure and making it unholy. And so I check myself and I, I you know, I, I work to live the life that Bible doctrine tells me to live, that I've called to live. And then I'm lovingly going to answer the Lord in. Now, with, being, with that being said, I know I'm going to go out there today and probably face about 50 tests, you know, one harder than the other. But you know what? It's all worth it if you're living for the Lord. You know, we do the right thing for the right reasons. You know, we don't help people 
for the sake of reward. We help people to help people, to make their day better, to make their life better. We help them because Jesus loves us and we love them, right? Not only that, but the business of teaching is the business is the business of caring for souls. You know, if somebody gets saved after a message that you've uh, received from the Holy Spirit and you've been used to deliver, it goes on your account. But conversely, if you are active in leading others away from God, that goes on your account too. Take a look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. It says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven uh, men, but the blasphemy against the, Holy, uh, against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. You know, when you prophesy in the name of the Lord or speak on behalf of the Lord, you are speaking to souls, and each soul is precious in the eyes of God. You are entrusted with the sacred truth and not just given an hour to entertain people. You know, it's hard. It's a skill and it's a lifestyle that must be cultivated. A person's character must be in line with this message because if not, it leads people to the wrong direction. Blasphemy is the denial of scripture and a person denies scripture in the denial of inerrancy, authority and authenticity. And that is exactly the action of every false teacher, whether it be in one area or all of them. You know, teaching is not for gain. Teaching is for edification. It is taking all you know and giving it to somebody else for their growth as you lead by an example. You know, one quote that I saw this week that didn't make it into my notes was uh, by Norman Geisler. He says, inerrancy isn't a scholarship issue. It's a lordship issue, right? Uh, if you take some of these liberal scholars out there uh, that are, are, are denying the word, uh, denying the histor historicity and denying the authenticity of the Bible, you know, it's not because of any true um, academic pursuit that they're pursuing. No, it's a lordship issue. It's because they don't believe in God in the first place, because they want to do whatever they want to do. You know, men have has always tried to take the place of God. You know, it goes all the way back to Nimrod. All the way back to Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, right? We see it where, where the example is he's trying to take over. And, and the same thing happens with men nowadays, right? Men want power. I don't care who you are. You want some sort of power, right? You always want to be the leader. You want to be the alpha. Well, if you can be the alpha over a whole bunch of people or even over the whole world as the Antichrist is going to come and try and be, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to deny God. And, and that's what the false teacher does. They deny God for their own personal gain to put themselves up above, right? They give you a message that you want to hear, not the message that you need to hear. And, and, and that's where the error comes because you lead other people into error. You know, when we read about the judgment that was faced by the giants, by the fallen angels and the sodomites, you know, and we, you know, we better be aware of that, that that same judgment and destruction will come uh, to them and, and it's going to come to the other people that are out there leading people astray and to, to those that have gone astray because we all have our own personal responsibility to go back and to read and to double check everything that's been taught to us right you know I pray that you guys are going back and double checking everything that I'm teaching to you on here because it is you know it is part of our walk right we examine the truth and we take the truth and we hold to the truth. Now, if somebody's giving you one truth, you don't want to hold on to that. You want to discard it. You know, make no mistake, we are sheep. 
and we are facing the challenge of wolves every day. But as, as all good flocks go, they are led by a good shepherd. And when the wolves come, and you better believe uh, that they're going to come, they receive the business end of the shaft from the shepherd, right? You know, Jude is writing to us. He's exhorting us to, uh, here to stay true to the word of God, by the truth of God. Because if we are separated, we will be devoured. Now, I want to stop here and let some of this sink in for us. You know, I want you to understand that as the church, we are not the true. Uh, we are not living the true Christian life through experiences and giggles. You know, we are not doormats that stand there smiling as we are uh, drugged through the mud. But the word Christian means to be a leader. We are servants of the Most High King with the field commission to win the world. You know, we need to be aggressive in truth. We need to be critical of outside influences, and we need to be agents of change, not conformity. You know, when we go into church and gather corporately, we're doing it to be changed from the inside out. We're not doing it to be entertained for an hour and get some Insta stories in, right? We see it all the time, believers in the clubs for, uh, you know, I see it all the time anyway, believers in the clubs for three weeks in a row, but that one Sunday of the month, there's that one Bible post. You know, a clip of a brand new Bible that's probably never been opened. You get that uh, short video of the worship team up there and, uh, you know, the how blessed I am quote. You know, but their lives do not reflect the claim. And it's because of ignorance. It's because of laziness. It's because of self-gratification. It's easier to, to digest self-gratification than it is sacrifice. In Mark chapter 10, I'm, I'm going to finish with this. Uh, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your, your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now take a look at that last line right there. Jesus said to us, Follow me, not follow thee. Right? Be aware. Make your eyes be only on Jesus. Have a tunnel vision. Follow him. And not the men, not the cunning men that are going to come in. You know, even our pastors, we have to look at the message. We have to look at the word and make sure that it's true. You know, it's on us. Let every man work out his own uh, salvation in fear and trembling. Am I correct? Amen. Father God, Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the message, Lord. Thank you for the warnings. Lord, thank you for your word. That we may always have it as reproof, Lord. We thank you that it's there for us in black and white each and every day. Lord, that no matter what, we can go back and we can look and we can search the scriptures and then search our hearts, Father, and turn them towards you. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would be on the right track, that each and every one of us would be watching out, Lord, and for the wolves that might come in, Lord, and that we ourselves would recognize it if we become the wolves. Father, I pray that you would change us, that you would work through us, that you would convict us, that you would just heal our hearts, Lord, heal our bodies, and heal our minds. Father, as we follow you, as we seek after you, as we chase you, Lord, and we look for you. Father, I thank you, and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.